Hi, I'm George, a German dentist and podcaster. I really enjoyed Jerome's Instagram Live interviews with really cool guests. So I approached him to turn it into a podcast and he uh, approved. Uh, I had to do some heavy editing, so the bad internet connection of Instagram was kind of covered up. But still, the topics uh, of the interview with Marty Drops are so great. They talk about pulp capping, propotomy, revascularization, CBTC, of course, the survival rate of endodontics with the new XP system. So the content is so great that I, I'm glad to present you the interview with Martin Trope. Make sure you follow Jerome on Instagram and Facebook. Good morning. Morning, morning. Dr. Trope. So this is the morning in America. Yes. Well, we have a lot of people who are joining right now. Actually, the beginning in the beginning, I just had a text at the moment I started from Gilberto de Bellian who wanted to see you. So <laughs> I had to answer to him just before so he wouldn't miss you. First of all, I would like to thank you very much for accepting this new kind of interview. I thought that since pretty much all the the world is, is locked down, that would be a good idea to, you know, um, have access to experts like you in endodontics and I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a series of interviews. So you're the first one. We'll try to make it like one hour, something like that. People are going to ask questions. They already asked questions in the beginning. So I have a, a list of questions and, and we'll go with the flow and, and we'll see how it goes. Is it okay with you? Sure, absolutely. Okay, great. So I will introduce you quickly for the people who don't know you. You, you published, and you correct me if I'm wrong, you You published over something like authored or co-authored like 200 papers. And uh, what's interesting, I, I read your, not all of your papers, but, you know, I screened through it this morning and, and you basically covered pretty much every topic in endodontics in, in your career, except maybe uh, endodontic surgery, but I'm not going to ask you a question about it. Okay, good. I and... won't answer even if you ask me. <laughs> so that's very interesting and it gives you very good, I think, a perspective on, on what has been done and maybe what will come, what is to come. So we're going to talk about all, pretty much we'll try to cover the topics that you, you covered in your research. You've been, so you, it's interesting to say that you had a practice and you are working in the, let's say, real world endodontics, like working with patients on a daily basis in an office. So you know what it is to treat patients. And at the same time, you were director of the, the, the end of program in, in Chapel Hill and um, teaching your whole life. So you have this basically the two, two hats with uh, teaching and practicing. Yeah. My first question is, is a little bit general. It's we, we read very often in, in articles and, and even yesterday, an article that was just published that Endo success, the outcome in endo, didn't really change over the last 20, 30 years. I'm always, let's say, puzzled with, with this phrase because we have a lot of technology now. We have the cone beam, we have the new instruments, we have the microscope, we have ultrasonics. I mean, we have so much technology. And I'm thinking if the success didn't really change, the outcome didn't really change, then why do we use this technology? So. Would you say that the success didn't change? And what, what, is, what is your take on this? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the success has changed. I think it's a combination of two factors. One, which will be overcome very, very soon, and that is the periapical radiograph is a very poor detector of disease. So I think we can't really tell how much disease is there. The CBCT technology is going to change that. And, you know, if those of you who follow the journals, there was a very nice editorial recently about CBCT, the elephant in the room. I'm absolutely convinced that the, the, the sensitivity of the CBCT is going to give us more, much more information about what is working compared to other things that are working less efficiently. The second thing is our research and the, you know, we're basically dependent on in vitro studies today. Uh, the in vivo study in animals because of ethical issues has sort of disappeared. And we're looking at in vivo studies, which really should never, ever go into a uh, clinical situation. That leads us to the clinical outcome studies. And I challenge any one of your, uh, the people watching today, to name a clinical outcome study that is not underpowered, you know. So if you have an underpowered study with 50 in each group, you know before you read the study that it's going to result in no difference, no statistical difference. And then human nature tells us to do what is easiest if there's no statistical difference. So what is easiest is obviously uh, one step and quick and one file and one this and one that. And then all of a sudden we're putting a stripe on an x-ray in the least amount of time. And that becomes what we call success. It's really a, a sad situation. I, I look back, I, I've been doing exclusively endo since 1978. I, I never gave uh, numbers, right? I, yeah. I <laughs> Some of the main questions that we had in, in those times have still not been answered in 2020. And that's just because of what I said. The studies have not been able to be done and they should be done in this world of Internet. Certainly, if we can talk from France to U.S. and probably all over the world now, we can certainly do a study which is involves the rest of the world so that we can have studies that are powered correctly so we can answer these questions. In school, I was under Grossman, Bender, and Seltzer. And Bender and Seltzer at that time did the famous study to culture or not to culture. You know, in our time, we had to do a, get a negative culture in order to fill a root canal. And it was completely ridiculous because you, even if you put your, your paper point in sodium hypochlorite, sometimes it came Positive, almost like the coronavirus now. <laughs> uh, they did the study that showed that culturing, which was aerobic culturing, was of no value. And unfortunately, the conclusion of the study was that bacteria were not important. Not that I they see. have to change the culturing technique, that bacteria were not important. This has been repeated now with one step, two step in my view. Because the studies are underpowered and the, the text no good, the periapical radiograph, there's no difference between one step and two steps. So they don't go, we don't go into histological studies, more basic studies. We say, no, bacteria are not important. And that brings me to today where 
we say, you know, the structure of the tooth is important for survivability. And again, if you want to not work in the gray area of life and you have to have a black and white area, then you have to prove that bacteria are not important because if you leave completely everything behind, including caries and debris, etc., you know, how, does, how do you justify minimally invasive to the extreme? So, you know, basically, uh, we're just repeating the same mistake over and over again, in my view, of course, basically yeah, yeah. because we don't have a good way to test these things in a, in a good prospective outcome study, etc. Long answer so, to a very simple question. <laughs> no, no, no. That, I think it's not a simple question. That's why I started with it. And actually, you said we're all over the world, and it's true because I can see people who are actually connected. And I see that uh, Gilberto, who is uh, with us, I mean, he cannot see us. And, I mean, he can see us, but we cannot see him. But he says as well that we actually treat more challenging cases now than that we would have been extracted before because of the microscope, because of, of all of this technology. So I guess that what he's saying is that maybe because we're treating more challenging cases, those cases are more likely to fail and then to have a, a consequence on the general outcome of, of, of the, the, the endotherapy in general. Yeah, but I mean, all our, most of our outcome studies are not done particularly with our specialty. You know, the outcome studies are generally, you know, in a university or a undergrad. But uh, uh, you could look at success in another way, as Gilberto is sort of pointing to, is these cases that we're doing now, we wouldn't even have attempted previously. Yeah, so even if you get a 50% success of those, then we can add that to our success because before those wouldn't have even been considered because they would have been extracted. And that actually leads me to another question. You have seen the emergence of the implant therapy. Like, uh, I guess when you started, maybe implants were not that placed or not placed at all. It didn't exist. So... Right. How did it change? And don't you feel that it's changing a little bit? There is a study that was published, I think it was at the end of last year, showing that at 15 years, the survival of implant was something like 82%, which brings us back to, oh, basically, endo actually is not that bad. And maybe we should go back, step back a little bit and try to save teeth a little bit more. And I, I have the feeling that there was a wave for the last 20 years where people were placing implants, placing implants, and now we have the consequences of everything and, and, and people are coming back to endo. Is it your feeling? Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, uh, when, when, in, when the implant era really got off, they were comparing survivability of an implant, which if you want to be very facetious, you know, if you sneeze and the implant doesn't come out, that the implant survived. Yeah. Uh, compared to our very strict biologic success, as I like to call it, the presence or absence of a lesion. So, you know, obviously the implants at the early time survived very well at three, four, five years. And now we know they don't survive as well as was first indicated because of uh, peri-implantitis and things like that. So uh, two a patient who's susceptible to periodontal disease is just as susceptible to implant disease. However, uh, implant did one thing for us, good and bad. One thing was it changed our orientation a little bit more to survivability. 
-hmm. When I was in Endo, my first 30 years, we just focused purely on the presence or absence of apical periodontitis, lesion or symptoms related to apical periodontitis. Uh, we didn't talk about survivability. You know, today we have sort of two definitions of success in endo. One is presence or absence of uh, apical periodontitis and survivability. So we're focusing on not only microbial control, but we have to do the microbial control without destroying the tooth. Because, you know, we all acknowledge that the best way to treat apical periodontitis is to extract the tooth. Uh, that'll get a, a, the best success for both marginal periodontitis and apical periodontitis. But, of course, we, it's implied as being dentists, we want to maintain the natural tooth. So we have to now focus on not only microbial control, but also maintaining as, tooth, as much tooth structure as possible in order not to make the tooth susceptible to the survivability definition, if you will. However, I want to stress, it's not one or the other. This is what the problem is, is some people say survivability is everything. Therefore, we now have to prove that uh, microbes and uh, disease of the apex is, is not important. No, it's both. I see. And we have to give a little bit on both sides, you know, but at the same time, we have to do the best microbial control we can while not destroying the tooth. And that's why, you know, uh, we're so involved with technologies that don't have these large papers and things like we're, that. We're going to talk about that. Actually, that's a transition. I wanted to talk about something else, but we'll, I'll keep that for the end. So that's interesting because you, you saw actually the, the evolution of the birth of the uh, rotary instrumentation as well. Uh, you were one of the first one to publish a paper with, uh, with the Dalton study, which is the comparison between night eye and stainless steel. And the conclusion was, as it is very often, that there is no much difference if it's well done and everything in terms. And it was a microbiological study, and it was the first one of a, of a series of different studies. So we're not going to talk about that. But this thing that the rotary, the last 10, let's say 2000, 2010, was all about who's going to have the best rotary instrumentation. And of course, we have a lot of uh, companies involved in it. What did the rotary instrumentation, and then I'll, I'll go to 2010, 2020, but what this, 2000, this decade from 2000 to 2010, do you think it, it really increased the, the prognosis? The, did it make it more easy, easier for general practitioner to do endodontics? Was it good for endo? Yeah, it was good for endo. You talk about nickel titanium, right? Yeah, nickel titanium. Yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. It was good for endo, but it was wasted uh, in many senses, right? So uh, with, when you talk about nickel titanium, you have flexibility in the file. So the problem that we had with stainless steel files was straightening, was alleging, perforating, etc. That is not due to the flexibility of the file. This is something that a lot of people misunderstand. That is due to debris production. And you could not because we were instrumenting the stainless steel files from apex to crown, we were creating a tremendous amount of debris. So what the, the two things that happen is the debris goes into the non-round areas of the canal 
and the debris stops you from going to bigger sizes, meaning cleaner canals, right? So once the debris is all packed in there, you start to deviate from the original canal. Then nighttime came in, and, and, and it's very flexible and it's very good. Everyone gave all the credit to the flexibility of the nickel-titanium file. But actually, I think the, the biggest advantage of nighttime was it loosened up the taper, it loosened up the amount of the, the millimeter, because when we did the stainless, stainless steel file, you had to have a six, 16 millimeter cutting edge. So what came with nickel titanium was the crown down technique. So what the crown down technique does is it creates less debris and it enables you to remove the debris uh, more efficiently before you get to that critical apical area, which is going to be the difference between success and failure of uh, apical periodontitis. The unfortunate thing was, because the crown down technique took four or five files, and because we were so used to the step back shape and the mesodistal shape that the stainless steel had ingrained in our minds for 20, 30, 40 years, the companies and then the practitioners followed they started to minimize the number of files. So now you had uh, techniques where it duplicated the stainless steel, less files more efficiently, creating the same problems, but again, not allowing you to go to bigger sizes safely. So again, the 25 at the apex, very narrow apex, big taper was recreated with nickel titanium. Whereas if you did the crown down, you would be able to clean at least a little better. Of course, with a round file, you can't clean perfectly, but you can clean a little bit better. And then we, I believe, would have had more successes. You know, when I came to Penn, I was under Tronstadt, uh, same as Gilberto. We, we were, our mentor was Tronstadt. And they, at that time, had the standardized technique. Standardized technique was a technique based on uh, statistics, really, of Kerakis and Tronstadt of what size you had to go to in order to change this non-round canal into a round canal. Of course, in about 20-25% of cases, that's impossible, but certainly in a mesial of a lower molar, a buckle of an upper molar, it's possible if you stay centered to do that without destroying the tooth too much. When I was with Tronstadt for 10 years, we had stainless steel files. It was a disaster. Absolutely. I mean, when we finished with the undergraduate students, there were, the, the question was how many ledges, how many perforations, how many this, how many that, because as you create more debris and you go to higher yeah. and higher sizes, you know, it was a disaster. But when nickel titanium came in, we could get to those sizes safely without destroying the tooth as much. Who would believe that would have... If we had a good detector and good studies, I believe that would have resulted in a better success. But then afterwards, when it came to the same shape with less files, probably the success rate would not be much different. I see, I see. So that's, yeah, that is, so if I follow you correctly, the, the, the biological principle were right. You just didn't have the technology and, and then the technology allowed you to mechanically meet your biological principle. Exactly. I mean, the biology never changes. Yeah. So, uh, so It's just the technology that we have to adapt 
in order to get a better biological result, not in order to get a quicker stripe on an X-ray. This is uh, the problem. It, it gives me the opportunity to, because, you know, we have live questions and, and then I'm going to move on to 2010, 2020 and maybe the future concept of instrumentation. But just before, uh, the article that is very famous that, that people quote all the time is the one that you wrote with uh, Dr. Ray about the importance about the obturation and, and the leakage. And, and Mohammed, that you know, is asking me the question, so I'm going to make him the pleasure to answer. People often say, don't, I think they misunderstand the, the article, and they say that endo is not important and the most important thing is the coronal feeling. What, what, can you maybe put that in perspective? And this was the, the first study that was written in this sense, and I think your objective was more to show that coronal feeling was important. Endo is important, but before maybe coronal feeling was not important. Yeah, this study was a very good example of what catches Okay, so I have been almost obsessed, if you will, if you look back at my career, with improving the root canal filling. Because the root canal filling is 10, 12 millimeters long. We should be able to seal everything from uh, the orifice to the apex uh, very, very well. And we can't, right? So if you do in vitro studies on a gutta percha fill, the studies are not very good. And they show that gutta percha will leak in two hours. Yeah. A sealer will take 30 days. So again, trying to get to a clinical conclusion. Do the in vitro studies mean anything? Right? So we did this very simple study. We got... Uh, I, I, I don't it's 1,000, I think. Yeah, it's 1,000. So the N is good. Right? We divided it into good uh, root canal, good seal, uh, bad root canal, bad seal, and combined everything. And we, we saw that the best, of course, was the best good root canal, good seal, the 95% success that everyone talks about. But what we found, interestingly, was that the seal of the coronal restoration was extremely important. Okay? But in order to get traction of the study and in order to get the community to take note, we said it was more important than the root canal filling. I see. And this just blew the community, uh, you know, because how can it be more important, etc. Many studies after that showed, again, that it was very important, extremely important. And, you know, we had some dialogue if it's, if it's more important or not. That doesn't, that's, that misses doesn't matter. the point. Yeah. Misses the point. The point is that you need to take care of the coronal restoration because your root canal filling, uh, certainly with the ones that we used at that time, were not effective as a complete barrier. I see. Okay, so now well, we have an answer, and that's, that's a good answer. Because but but I'm very proud of that study because of the N. Yeah, it's, it's very important, yeah. Yeah, it's true. And so so it, a lot of people really... say, I, I've seen criticism all over the place. Oh, it's a radiographic study. Yes, but the N takes care of that. Oh, you didn't examine the teeth clinically. Yes, the N takes care of all of those things. I so understand. this is another example of why the N is so important. Yeah, yeah I understand. Okay, yeah. 
So uh, my next question now, I'm going to move to the endo itself and the instrumentation. What, what we've seen, so now in two, I would say that 2010, now the nickel titanium was really established. We, we so urged from the industry to come to not emotion-based, but more design-based or philosophy-based set of instruments. And one of, so we had the reciprocation, but we, I think we don't have time to talk about it. I'm more interested in, there is this, this uh, team in, in Israel, and, and I think you know Zimetzger uh, on, on a personal uh, note. So they, they came with the SAF, the self-adjusting file, that, that was this hollow tube that was basically scraping the, the wall, going back and forth. And that was a fantastic idea, I, I think. Gave, I guess, the, the, it, it started the beginning of rethinking the instrumentation process. When we look at the study that were published before, even your studies, it was more apical size, should we go bigger, how is it to clean and everything. But basically apical size, if I understand correctly, is just taking care of something that is three-dimensional with a diameter that is two-dimensional. And now the technology has allowed us to move forward and, and maybe to take care a little bit more about that. So we know that, that you worked a lot with the... Um, XP from the FKG and Brassler and the sequence, etc. XP, the, this instrument. Uh, before talking about the instrument itself, can you elaborate about the philosophy behind it? Yeah, all right. So, so let, me, let me take one step back. The apical size, in my view, with this, the, the new concept, if you will, is only important for one, for one point. And When I give lectures and I talk about this, generally people listen, but they don't take note, in my view, to, to enough extent. And that is, I'm absolutely convinced that you need to get your irrigating needle to your working length. You, with a, with a vapor lock and, and, and these problems that we have, you cannot clean the apical two, three, four millimeters without displacing these bubbles. And the only way to displace bubbles is with something solid, and the only thing that's solid and can irrigate at the same time is your irrigating needle. So we're using a 31-gauge needle, side vent, you know all the uh, dynamics of how the irrigation works. And all of this is irrelevant unless you can remove what you've touched. So you need to get your irrigating needle to the working length, in my view. And we've got, we've got a study at Penn at the moment on nanotechnology and all these things. We had to even adjust the study because it was nanotechnology versus normal irriga irrigation. When we got our irrigating needle to the working length, or uh, when they got, I'm not part of the study, they could not grow microbes. Oh, so to redo re the study so they're a little bit short, pair it to the nanotechnology. So that's point number one. So, so when I say I don't worry about round sizes anymore, that's true as after I can get my irrigating needle to the working day. The SAF file was absolutely revolutionary. It was, in my view, in the history of endo, it's going to be recognized as the turning point in instrumentation. I mean, it just changed our minds completely. I 
challenge your uh, the people who are listening to this to go back to the research yeah and compare look at it and i will probably find that every single thing that we look at we talk about in in uh, instrumentation the microbes left behind the walls touched the the maintaining of the natural shape in all, in other words maintaining as much tension as possible the saf beats around file every time right so really what we're trying to do with the xp with these two instruments is trying to duplicate what the saf can do because the saf really is not very useful in terms of everyday practice you know it's attached to a machine which leaks eventually and it takes a long time so like most things that are first generation and uh, you know revolutionary maybe they didn't take into account the user uh, needs etc but certainly uh, it changed our com- our mind completely and it's moved us into this new era of which Gilberto myself and FKG have been developing something with the same principles as the SAFR I see so basically the idea behind the XP is uh, to increase and we've seen it it came with the microcity as well i mean microcity studies came around i think the first one was pake who showed that that you you actually we we leave behind between 60 and 80% of of the surface non touched in oval canals which which was really something that that was depressing except if you want to make it better and then you work on something else which which we pretty much all did so in terms of touching the root canal surface basically what is the concept behind the uh, xp shaper then and then we'll talk about the finisher later but uh, what about the shaper yes the idea is that you've got a very narrow core in a snake shape if you will that has the ability to cut dentin if necessary right so that means that if the canal is naturally less than a 30 and remember uh, we want to irrigate so we use a 31 gauge needle with a 30 so if the canal in any any part is less than a 30 it will make a 30 however if the canal is naturally more than a 30 it will move in a snake uh, way touching the walls because it's moving eccentrically this is exactly the principle of shilder with the envelope of motion shilder used to do with a stainless steel file is curve the file and then spin it with his hand obviously didn't take on for the masses because it's a stainless steel file you have to recurve it every four or five up and down it's very intensive work and then you take a periapical radiograph and you can't see the benefit right we now have new technologies we have nickel titanium we have mwires which is moving from martensite to austenite a rotary and cbct to or micro ct to see the effect so we have tremendous advantage but shoulder had the identical idea you know uh, what we're trying to do is touch as many walls as possible while at the same time not touching unnecessary walls I see. So, so we are not making a round files which will thin the a round shape which will thin the 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 walls of the canal. And then you then the finisher will do the rest of the job if you will. So I ha- we had question I I I will yeah, we'll let's talk about the finisher. 
the the finisher we had quite uh, just one question sorry sure we've seen studies about the shaper uh, doing uh, done by uh, adam azim about the speed and i think people are really confused about the speed how much speed they're going to use because when they see already 1000 it's very fast and then maybe it's faster and everything so what would be the effect of the speed how is it possible to go higher and should we go higher yeah well speed you see again people have to understand that a file breaks for one of two reasons cyclic fatigue and because this is such a thin wire it won't break from cyclic fatigue okay so or in a reasonable amount of time of a clinical endo so you know we make the example of cyclic fatigue where you have a metal rod and you're going like this yeah. and eventually this is like cooked spaghetti it's not going to break from cyclic fatigue it's just too flexible i see the other way it can break is torsional fatigue which is hip lock and actually the way to make hip lock safer or less likelihood for hip lock is to go faster you want a smooth cut and you don't want a, the the file to to stop the cut actually the faster you go the safer it is in terms of tip lock and because the cyclic fatigue is so resistant you have the luxury of going faster right you know like a 40006 you you cannot go too too fast because it'll break from cyclic fatigue too quickly Okay that was my question. Okay. So now it brings us to the to finisher. Some people are because it's it's such a gap in terms of you know like a step in terms of instrumentation design and everything that some people think about starting with the the finisher for example and the question that we have very often is is the shaper an instrument an instrument for irrigation? So how would you describe it? What is the effect of the, of the DXP finisher? You mean in terms of irrigation? Yeah, well, is it an instrument that we should use for the irrigation or does it change anything in terms of irrigation protocols? Yeah, well, I mean, well, let me just describe the finisher first. It's a very narrow, it's a 25 core with the exact shape of the shoulder envelope of motion, right? So it has the capacity to reach about 3 mm in air and 6 mm if you squeeze it, right? So it has the capacity to go everywhere where any other instrument cannot go it doesn't have the capacity to cut dentin it can only scrape so it's equivalent to a periodontal scraper P- periodontists have to scrape biofilm with a with a scalar scalar curette okay, yeah this is your endocurette if you will and at the same time it's agitating and moving the irrigant right so it's actually part of the irrigation protocol that's when we use the finisher so we may we use the shaper to do the initial shaping and touching and then the finisher as part of the deep disinfection irrigation technique so the shaper will clean without creating debris so so the the non-round areas will not be packed with debris and then the finisher comes afterwards both touching the walls and moving the biofilm into the main canal to be later irrigated but at the same time pushing the irrigant into these irregularities the isthmus the and things like that so i would say it's the second stage which combines irrigation and touching and scaling the walls etc 
Okay, and so how is it compared to that question that we have about uh, between sonic and ultrasonic irrigation compared as opposed to XP system? Yeah, well, again, I think sonic you can take out. I don't think sonic really is of its value compared to nothing, but not value compared to ultrasonic or the XP. I think when you, when you look at the studies of XP versus ultrasonic, and I'm talking in general terms, in general terms, they will be equal. However, the XP is better in the apical third. Okay. And that's, that's because it moves on the inner wall. It's able to act in the, uh, in the apical third, whereas, as you know, ultrasonics is most effective when it's loose and free. And, of course, with a natural taper, you're going to have it loose and free in the coronal two-thirds, and in the apical third, it's going to much more likely be bound and not able to act in its ultrasonic capacity. So that's what we find, is if you look at these studies, always look, I always look at the apical third, because that's where you get your biologic success. My philosophy today is that my microbial control is focused on the apical third of the canal, and whatever the coronal third has, I mustn't destroy. So I'm trying to do as little as possible in the coronal two-thirds and as much as possible, not in terms of removing dentin, but in terms of microbial control in the apical third. So, okay. yeah, sorry. Okay, no, no, no problem. So I understand the, the, so the philosophy behind it. Now it brings us to another question. You worked on uh, obturation and all of this topic, you know, the gutta percha and everything. The bioceramic uh, came pretty much at the same time. I think it was, uh, I mean, it's now, and it's called the bioceramics, but we, call, we can call it calcium, silicate, uh, hydraulic cements, etc. And I think it's more appropriate to use this term. What would be the technique? Because now that the shape is not adjusted, that it's not the same shape that we had with rotary instrumentation, because the, the good thing about rotary instrumentation is that, of course, you have something that is standardized, and then you can use the same cone, etc., etc. So what about this new kind of obturation? I, I can't take any credit for it, but this bioceramic calcium silicate sealer came at exactly the right time. Because you know, if you go back and look at the shape, this big tapered shapes, they actually are, have got nothing to do with instrumentation. It's all to do with obturation. And obturation in the old technique requires either a spreader for lateral condensation or a plugger for vertical condensation. And there has to be enough space to get those close to the apex, right? Why did we need the lateral or vertical condensation? It was because the sealer shrinks mm -hmm. and the sealer washes out in uh, contact with tissue fluid. So we had to have maximum gutta percha, minimum sealer, just a thin painted sealer on the wall. For that, you need to do this technique of lateral or vertical. For that, you need space. Now we have conservative preparations with, with very conservative tapers and you can't get the plugger down there. But we have a new class of sealer, which doesn't shrink. In fact, overall, it expands very, very slightly. And it doesn't wash out in the presence of tissue fluids. So 
we now can use a stealer-based technique, not a gutta-percha-based technique. So basically, we're using the gutta-percha for nothing else but our hydraulic pump, if you will, to move the sealer into all the irregularities. So before, when I was growing up, quite justifiably, a one-cone technique was absolutely, completely out. I mean, if you told someone you did one cone, it was like saying, I am not worthy of being an endodontist. And the reason was a one-cone technique leaves a thick layer of these sealers that wash out and contract, right? But now when you have a sealer that doesn't wash out and doesn't uh, contract, you don't need maximum gutta percha. You need actually maximum sealer. So we have a different concept. We fill the canal with sealer as best we can. And then we use the gutta percha as a hydraulic pump. Think of vertical condensation, but it's cold, so there's no shrinkage afterwards. And that moves the sealer into the spaces that a round gutta percha point does not go to. I see. So we have questions here, and actually it's, it's, it's my class residents, my classmates who are asking those questions, Shafiq and Saleh and everything. So I'm going to ask, I'm, I'm gonna ask the question. If it was only Shafiq, I wouldn't, but then it's, it's so <laughs> other people as well. So they say, do you think that overall, and I would change a little bit the question, but do you think that overall this XP kind of philosophy, and I'm sure in the future other, other instruments will come like this, it's not only XP was the first one, but you can see Densply now that it's going with something that is a little bit similar. So I would guess that it's not a question of one instrument. It's just more a philosophy that is catching a little bit. Would you say that this new philosophy of instrumentation and obturation will eventually improve the success? And maybe that if I give it a twist, the success or maybe the survival of the teeth that we're treating? Well, the, the hope and the whole initiative behind it is yes and yes. So... It should improve the success because of better microbial control in the apical third. It should improve the survivability because of less uh, tooth structure removed in the coronal two-thirds. Why I say should, I'm convinced it will, but we need that research to improve. Yeah, and it's very, very difficult. Yeah, yeah but it doesn't have to be difficult. There's no reason why four institutes in the world cannot put a study together with... 50 cases each, which we used to do, but now that would mean 200, 300 cases each, and then we could finally find out what is better and what is less good. But, it, you know, it makes complete sense to me because if you remove more microbes and you leave more tooth structure, you don't have to be a genius to, to assume that you're going to get better success. So we just have to have good research now to prove one versus the other. And we have another question, and that I think uh, that's a good question. What is your opinion then, and that might be the next step about a gentle wave? And now it's the only one that is like that. But, you know, Sonendo, this, uh, the Lucy machine, I mean, which is basically the evolution of the Lucy machine. So pumping in and out, basically, without instrumenting, uh, pumping in and out hypochlorite. I I'm just you know, summarizing it for people who don't know what gentle wave is. Well, great idea. Ultimate aim. But you need to explain to me how the gentle wave knows the end of the root canal. The apex locator is not 100% effective. 
And uh, I had some not such good experience with the Lucy machine in research. So um, this is uh, something that I, I've heard anecdotally that people have had problems with uh, post-op pain and swelling and things like that. But in the future, it may end up to be not, not maybe the Sonendo, but something in that terms. But to me, it's irrigation. So, you know, I, I cannot believe you don't have to instrument. And I cannot believe that, uh, that this machine with a patient of 16 years old and a patient of 80 years old will stop at the apex after six minutes every time. Yeah. It's just inconceivable to me. Again, if there's decent research, maybe they can prove me wrong. But until there's that research, I'm not putting my patient to be the research, the research yeah. you tool. But again, you know, uh, we'll, I, see. Okay. we'll see. Um, I'll have for the, we have yeah, 10 minutes left. I have another uh, question that is, uh, that comes back to your first researches. If, if, if I'm right, I mean, a lot of researches that you've done. Do you think that the new instrumentation philosophy that we have and the new uh, irrigation, I mean, let's say that the finisher is an instrument, uh, irrigation device, which is both, but should we still continue Should we do single, multiple? Should we stay with the in, like two visit steps when there is a periapical lesion? What is your uh, take on this? Uh, the the quick answer is I don't know. The longer uh, the longer answer is what I do know is less bacteria results in more success. So I don't think in a specialist field that one extra visit for an infected root canal is the worst thing in the world. It gives you the ability to come back. It gives you the ability to check. It gives you the ability to have your patient confirm that they feel good, etc., etc. So until it is proven with good research that this uh, technology is so superior that an extra antimicrobial week or two weeks has no benefit, then I would stick with the two visit for infected teeth, of course, for vital teeth with no microbes to start. The quicker you obturate, the better, the quicker you put your coronal restoration, the better. So I'm hopeful that this new technology, the new irrigation, etc., would eliminate microbes so that an intracanal medicament would make no difference. Living in the world we live in where we don't have research that is good enough to show that difference, I'm still going to the, the level below that. That means animal studies, microbiological yeah. studies, less bacteria means more success. I will do everything within reason to lower the bacterial count. Therefore, until proven otherwise, I will still use an intracanal medicament. And there should be tremendous research to improve on calcium hydroxide. All these, to culture or not to culture, one step, two step, all these philosophies, if you will, have taken our eye off the ball because we should be improving our intracanal medicament and not talking about one step versus two step, if you will. I understand. So let's maybe we can go a little bit towards the, the future 
And that takes me back to 2004, which is not the future. But you, you published, I think it was the first article about revascularization, right, with uh, banks. And that was 2004. That's, I was not even studying dentistry at the time. The revascularization was a, a big thing. What well, was, uh, yeah, 10 years ago in, in 2010, time for people to get used to the idea. Your study was about, I think it was the first one to use the tri uh, antibiotic paste and, and to try revascularization. I think it was a mandibular premolar. Where are we now with revascularization? We don't, we don't see so many presentation and, and research as it was before. So how is it going and, and where are we with vital bulk therapy right now? Yeah, just before I uh, answer that question, let me just say before I, uh, you get 100 cakes, I was not the first. <laughs> Iwaya, Iwaya uh, was uh, the first in the new era. There have been others in uh, previous eras. And the first one is Nigat Osby who did this blood clot. But uh, certainly our paper caught the imagination of the, of the specialty and it's become much more interesting. I think at the moment we're at a lull period. Uh, one of the, the things is the AAE gave a million dollars or something to do an outcome study on uh, revitalization. And we're sort of in the period now where we don't know what the results are going to be and we're waiting. And we're also in a period where people tend to think mechanically rather than biologically. So, for example, people are saying, oh, I can do a bioceramic or calcium silicate plug and do a fiber post and get a similar result. I think they're missing the point. I think this is a, a progression. And ultimately, in the not too distant future, we will be able to regrow pulp. I think they've made one or two very, very important mistakes, and that is we went for the, the full re, revascularization and tried to create a stem cell that would create pulp initially. What we should have concentrated on is a pulpotomy, for example. If you do a pulpotomy and you put a good scaffold and a good coronal restoration, We've got the progenitor stem cells in the space to regrow the pulp back into its original position. You know, we could cut the pulp halfway down root canal and regrow it. What we've been focusing on, uh, taking out the entire pulp or concentrating on teeth that are already infected and try to grow the tissue as pulp. Personally, I don't care if it's periodontal ligament, if it's bone, as long as it's vital and non-infected, I'm quite happy with that. But that seems to be the focus. And because of that, it's taking a long time. We're having the same problems as we have with everything else. The in vitro studies don't jive with the clinical situation. I mean, if you look at the in vitro studies on revitalization and you, they tell you that calcium hydroxide is very good for stem cells. They obviously have never done a pulp cap. Mm. Because when you do a pulp cap, it destroys the first millimeter and a half of, uh, of vital tissue because it's got a pH of 12.5. So the conclusion of that study is my study design is terrible because it's showing no toxicity to the cells. But because, unfortunately, a lot of people who do these studies have never been in a clinic, we're starting to get these delaying studies. Eventually, the cream will rise to the top, but 
this all delays the studies. And while it's being delayed, the, the technicians come in and they say, I can do an apical plug, etc. So to answer your question, I think it's sort of in a lull period, but we will again see Go back a, work. Yeah. an interest, a good interest and some very nice steps forward because I follow this field quite well. And in the lab, some incredible things are happening. So things are coming and we should stay tuned. Stay tuned, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's uh, almost this, the end and, and we're going to cut, be cut in four minutes. So I, I would have a last question that you can answer quickly is now it's the transition and, and would you have a message for the, the, the future generation of endodontists? And I'm, I'm, I'm saying endodontists, but people who like endo, who, what is your message for them? The message is it's very exciting time. If they take a biologic approach rather than a, a technical approach. My, uh, you know me very well and the ex-students uh, who uh, are listening here know my favorite saying is technicians are always replaced by technology. And I just read an article in Time magazine a week ago that the Apple Watch is now more lucrative than the entire Swiss watch industry. Okay, well, that's my perfect example of technology will always replace technicians, right? So, if you look at CBCT, you look at three-dimensional root canal instrumentation and three-dimensional root canal filling. This is something that gives the specialist or special dentist an advantage over those people who are just creating a line on an x-ray in 20 minutes. So if you, as an endodontist, don't get caught into this game of, oh, you can do it in 20 minutes, I can do it in 18 minutes, uh, 11 minutes, and then the general dentist catches you all the time, and you can say, I can do it better. You know, there is, we now have a three-dimensional detector which shows more disease, but now I have a three-dimensional technology which cleans better. Mm -hmm. You will always be ahead of the person who's not really that interested. But it has to be done, you know, in a biologic way. And you've got to show the general dentist what you know and what they don't know. Even if we talk about pulp capping, you know, everyone thinks this new vital pulp therapy is a threat to them because there'll be less root canal treatment. I guarantee you, a person who doesn't use rubber dam, who knows nothing about asepsis, who is not a superior endodontist or dentist, they will have a terrible success for pulp capping. Okay. This is something for specialties, so you have to promote it that way. Okay, so the conclusion would be the future is try to be a clinician rather than a technician. Try to be, yes, and sell yourself that way. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your... Oh, sorry. Well, that's the end. So thank you very much for uh, your time, Dr. Trope. It's possible to see this interview live again. I hope you and your family are well and stay home and stay safe. Thank you. And to everyone watching, the same thing. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>